This episode of Bag of Bones is supported by Damsel in Defense, a U.S.-based company specializing in personal protection products. Check out our exclusive link at www.mydamselpro.net forward slash bones. John Sager was born 1831. Francis, who would rather be called Frank, was born 1833. Catherine, the first girl, born April of 1835. Elizabeth was born July 6, 1837. Matilda was born October 6, 1839. Louise, born in 1841. Henrietta Naomi Rosanna was born on the Oregon Trail on May 30, 1844. In April of 1844, the Sager family, Father Henry and mother, the very pregnant Naomi, packed up what they could fit into a brand new covered wagon with a brand new team of oxen, and with the hope of a new life, they joined the second only mainstream trip to cover the 2,000 mile journey to the Willamette Valley. They left St. Joseph, Missouri for the Oregon Trail. This is the harrowing tale of the Sager family. Welcome, my name is Elizabeth Bougeret, and I'm that person when studying the many facets of history likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows, because we all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen, then, to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found in my bag of bones. Captain William Shaw was chosen to lead his group of 25 or so wagons across the country from Missouri to Oregon. The year is 1844, and it was just last year that a group of 1,000 wagons made up the very first wagon-oriented trip out west to settle the Pacific coast. In 1836, a young missionary, Marcus Whitman, and his new bride, along with friends Eliza and Henry Spaulding and Mr. William Gray showed the world that it could be done. Miss Narcissa Whitman and Miss Eliza Spaulding were the first white women to cross the Rocky Mountains in a wagon, no less. Narcissa's letters and journals were published and shared as she delighted in the journey and expressed the beauty there was in this wild and untamed country and how the journey wasn't unpleasant. The wagon had no springs, but they sat on baggage and found it comfortable enough. She wrote, quote, I wish I could describe to you how we live so that you can realize it. Our manner of living is far more preferable to any in the States. I never was so contented and happy before, neither have I enjoyed such health for years, End quote. Marcus Whitman and the other missionaries had set up their mission houses and did what they thought was best at the time, which was to educate and bring Christianity to save the poor heathen souls to the Native Americans, whether they wanted it or not. The missions, however, were not doing very well. Not a surprise, really. But 
they were being threatened to be shut down unless they got more funding or the population in the territory grew so as to make Oregon a state. Marcus Whitman went back east and rallied people telling them all of the health benefits, how the soil was so fertile that it grew produce twice the size as in the east, all the things. America wanted this expansion as well, so everywhere the people looked they saw manifest destiny and believed it was their right to go forth and claim the lands, whether they had already been claimed or not. So Whitman's speeches fell right into this whole excitement, and soon he had 1,000 wagons ready to follow him across the country to lands unseen and untamed by American hands. There weren't really carved out roads or signposts along the way, and the journey was not yet tried and trued for the safest routes to make it across the long and dangerous jagged mountains. No worries, they'll figure it out as they go. Mission accomplished. Whitman's, as well as the other missions, were saved, and the expansion of the American borders was well underway. Well played, propaganda. Well played. Hello, listeners. We are Katie, Amber, Kylie, and Matt. And we are the hosts of Save Me an Isle Seat, a show that talks about musicals in an understandable and relatable way. If you like musicals or theater in general, or if you're interested in them but don't know where to start, We'd love to help introduce you. Come find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Or on our website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. And we'll be sure to save you an aisle seat. Dr. Marcus Whitman created quite a buzz when he came east to talk about the new wonders of Oregon, and those who couldn't go on the initial trip had to wait until the following spring, such as the Sagers did. At this time, there still wasn't much feedback as to how the first journey went or where the pitfalls might be, so it was still pretty much making a blind go of it. All they really knew was that the last group of immigrants were excited to be the first, and Henry Sager wasn't about to be left behind for another year. This was a man who had a restless spirit and was anxious to see what else was out there, a blacksmith by trade and also well adept at farming. He felt that he could make a good life for his family. He put his money down in 1843 to purchase a brand new wagon and two yoke of oxen, which means four oxen that were paired together, two per yoke. He gathered up supplies like flour, sugar, coffee, and cornmeal, and was prepared to sell everything else. Naomi, his wife, not so much. She was curious about the new world as well, but she also appreciated comfort and was resistant to letting go of all of her belongings. The family Bible must go. Her wedding cedar chest must go. And she was not about to sit on the ground to take her meals, so chairs must go. And she was also seven and a half months pregnant, so every mattress must go. Henry accommodated his wife as best he could, he created a space just behind the driver's bench where the small children could ride and the back half of the wagon was filled to the top with the essentials. The caravan of crisp white-topped wagons lined up to cross the Missouri River and they were off. Catherine Sager, who was on the verge of turning nine, would recall, quote, Soon everything went smooth and our train made steady headway. The weather was fine and we enjoyed the journey pleasantly. There were several musical instruments among the emigrants, 
and these sounded clearly on the evening air when camp was made and merry talk and laughter resounded from almost every campfire, end quote. Henry Sager soon discovered that he knew nothing about steering oxen. While he may have bought them a year in advance, he didn't actually meet them until a month before they were to become partners on this journey. He and his two sons were learning as they went, much like many of the others who may have just been farmers who fancied themselves to be adventurers. The oxen, who were not fans of water crossing, overturned the wagon with Naomi inside, causing a severe head injury. She was literally due any moment, but the wagon train couldn't stop, but she was wounded badly enough that it caused her to stay inside the wagon to heal and rest, leaving the care of the children to fall to their father. A little over a month into the journey, Naomi did give birth, their fifth daughter. They named her Rosanna after Naomi's grandmother. The birth was difficult, and even though the wagon train stopped for the momentous event, it couldn't pause for long. The rocking and jostling plus the stifling heat made it difficult for her to recover. They were fortunate to be with a very caring group of pioneers, as each of the families helped one another when they could. Henry was a capable marksman and would shoot buffalo and antelope for his family and was willing to share with the others. They were taught by others among the group how to dry the meat into thin strips making it last longer and were warned not to be wasteful, that every part of the animal was useful. But at the beginning of the trip, all things were beautiful and glorious and there was no reason to believe that they wouldn't be able to shoot another animal when the time came, so there was much left behind. Not a man being obstinate, just a farmer who didn't understand the consequences of his choices in the moment. A very wet spring pounded the wagons with rain, soaking their belongings and spoiling many of the dry supplies. The children had to ride inside and breathe in the stale, moldy stench of the confining space and canvas cover. The men had to walk alongside the wagons in the pouring, unrelenting rain, soaking their clothes and urging the heavy beasts forward through inches of thick mud. Everyone was feeling the effects of the weather and took turns riding in the wagon to heal from various colds, flu, and other ailments. Little by little, Naomi's prized possessions were being laid by the side of the trail to make room for the seemingly endless cycle of sickness. By now, the wagon train had already fallen way behind schedule because, in part, Captain Shaw seemed to be a very caring leader. But there were heavy consequences if one fell too far behind. So as July rolled through, they were unable to celebrate young Elizabeth's birthday or participate in the Independence Day revelations. The good feelings that were cherished at the beginning of the trip were all just memories now. August 1st, Catherine, the 8-year-old and the oldest daughter, jumps playfully from the moving wagon. This simple childlike action she'd done a hundred times, but this time her dress gets caught on an axe handle. Her body falls under the wagon and her leg is run over by one of the wagon wheels, breaking it close to the hip. The news spread along the wagon train and they halted to search for a doctor to help set the leg. Dr. Dagen, a German doctor, came to her aid. He was able to set the leg, but she was confined to the back of the wagon for the remainder of the trip. So, are you imagining this? Just the immense pain, even for the hardiest of eight-year-olds and there's no pain medication. So, she probably passed out when they were setting her leg. Hopefully. 
Her leg is then probably wrapped with fabric, and then her leg will be bound with hard-edged wood, keeping her leg straight, and then wrapped again. And then she's placed in the back of the wagon with toddlers. Henry built a trough, which was a padded frame of sorts that her leg would rest in to keep it still and to keep it from getting bumped too often, which meant that Naomi didn't have her helper any longer and had to take back her duties of running her portable household. She was very weak, but pushed through it for the sake of her family. But then, Henry and the two boys became very ill and had to ride in the wagon more often. The wagon train could not stop. Many of the wagons were dealing with family illness, but they could no longer pause. Dr. Dagan agreed to stay with the family, and he was a great help, but no better with the oxen than Henry. But to the frail Naomi, he was a godsend. One afternoon, Henry decided that he would try to sit up front and lead the team when a small group of bison came running between the wagons. Henry reached behind him, grabbed his shotgun, and although very ill and dizzy, made chase knowing his family needed food. This would be his undoing. Not only did he not kill a beast, but he fatigued himself beyond repair. He knew he wasn't going to make it. That evening when the wagon stopped for the night, William Shaw found him weeping. Henry was distraught, feeling that he had let his family down, and implored the captain to take charge of his family and get them safely to Willamette Valley. Captain Shaw, being the good and noble man that he is, obliged him. Henry Sager died the next day. The wagon train stopped, and they made a coffin for him from some nearby trees and buried him beside the river. Naomi Sager hired a new driver to help the doctor control the team. He knew he was not the man for the job, but chose to stay close to the family to help where he could. By this time, Naomi's health was fading rapidly, and it was said that she was delirious a good part of the time. Her body was wasting away, and she could no longer produce milk for the baby Rosanna. One afternoon, the new young driver said that he would like to use the shotgun to go out and get some game for the family. Naomi nodded her permission and thanked him, and off he went, only he never returned. Naomi hoped to at least get to the Whitmans to winter and then continue on in the spring, but even she realized she wasn't going to make it. Looking back, it's believed that both parents died of scurvy. If you're interested in how the Oregon Trail pioneers had to fight daily for their lives, episode 34 covers all of those in the longest graveyard. This illness is not from getting well-rounded amounts of nutrients and vitamins, especially vitamin C. They were living mostly on meat and bread. The thing with scurvy is that it starts from the inside out and you don't realize that something is really wrong until the organs start shutting down. Symptoms such as bruising, fatigue, or irritability, muscle aches could all be chalked up to a day in the life of an Oregon Trail pioneer. One of the final symptoms is swollen gums, and then bleeding gums. By this time, the disease is irreversible. Their daughter Catherine would later say, quote, The nights and mornings were very cold, and she took cold from the exposure unavoidably. With camp fever and a sore mouth, she fought bravely against fate for the sake of her children, but she was taken delirious soon after reaching Fort Bridger and was bedfast. 
Traveling in this condition over a road clouded with dust, she suffered intensely. We traveled a rough road the day she died, and she moaned fearfully all the time. Now remember, Catherine is only eight years old, just lost her father 26 days prior, and is unable to get out of the wagon. She is literally watching her mother wither away. She goes on to say, At night, one of the women came as usual, but she made no reply to questions, so she thought her asleep and washed her face, then took her hand and discovered the pulse was nearly gone. She lived but a few more moments. The tent was set up, the corpse was laid out, and the next morning we took the last look at our mother's face. The seven Sager children were now orphans. Naomi knew she was dying and was at least able to say her goodbyes to each of her children, although the two youngest would not remember. She begged that the Shaws would deliver her children to the Whitman mission because they thought very highly of the doctor and his wife and knew they would take them in. And, of course, with food running low and winter coming, it really was the only option for the children. No one in the wagon train had the food, space, or supplies to take on even one more child. It was decided. Once the wagon train crossed the Blue Mountains, they would seek out the assistance of Marcus and Narcissa Whitman. Everyone in the wagon train did what they could to help the children. Dr. Dagan stayed with them, and the boys took over handling the oxen. Baby Rosanna was passed up and down the line to mothers who were nursing their own babies and would allow her to nurse as well. Captain Shaw moved the Sager wagon behind him so he could keep a better watch on them, and Mrs. Shaw, with four children of her own, did her best to look after them as well, especially the youngest. One night, Louise, the youngest save one, had crawled from the back of the wagon on a night that was bitterly cold in search for her mother. She took her mother's loss the hardest and remained inconsolable. Her sister would say that she would cry herself to sleep since there was no food, or milk, or even water by that point. And now, no mother. Luckily, Mrs. Shaw heard the child crying, and the captain went out and found her near freezing to death. Catherine would later write about the Shaws, quote, Their kindness will ever be cherished in grateful remembrance by us all. When our flour gave out, they gave us bread as long as they had any, actually dividing their last loaf. To this day, Uncle Billy and Aunt Sally, as we call them, regard us with affection of parents, end quote. At the Snake River, the wagon was cut down into a cart to save the oxen. Some of the belongings were sold to the Indians for fish and potatoes, and the rest was left behind. It was the last of their parents being left behind. Catherine watched as her mother's beloved cedar chest filled with all of their memories slipped out of sight. She turned away knowing they must move forward. You've all survived history class. My history education was all about cramming dates and names and battles into my teenage brain in order to pass the newest test to make the school look good. I didn't really enjoy history until I was able to revisit it and see that history was made up of people just like me. They had struggles, 
They had joy, they had sadness, and they felt victories. It became so very real to me. And now I'm on a mission to revisit as much history as I can. Hello, my name's Elizabeth Bougere. I'm a full time author and a full time traveler, and I would love to share what I'm learning with you. Come with me, see my sights and stories as I go. I love history now, real history, not just the dates and battles, and I've discovered that others do too. So, I've created a group in Facebook, and I'd love for you to join me on my travels and adventures. Let me reintroduce you to a history that's made up of people, places, adventures. I'll even throw in a few battles for good measure. If you love American history with a side of travel, I'm sure you'll enjoy this group. Join me over there. Search the Facebook groups for History Revisited, I'm the one with the blue feather, or type in historyrevisited.info in the search bar and then join in on the adventure. And so I can be sure to welcome you properly, be sure to say hello. Captain Shaw's wagon train peaked at the top of the Blue Mountains with the aid of some of the Cayuse Indians who were sent to guide them. And down below, perfectly situated in the valley, was the Whitman Mission. Catherine describes the layout, quote, We saw a large white house surrounded with palisades. A short distance from the doctor's dwelling was another large adobe house used by the immigrants in the winter and for grain in the summer. It was situated near the mill pond, and the grist mill was not far from it. Between the two houses were the blacksmith shop and the corral. The garden lay between the mill and the house, and a large field was on the opposite side. A good-sized ditch passed in front of the house, connecting it with the mill pond, intersecting other ditches all around the farm for the purpose of irrigating the land." End quote. Captain Shaw broke away from the rest of the wagon train and took the children and the smaller cart to move more quickly towards the Whitmans, for the cattle were dying off one by one and progression was very slow, so they could easily catch up. Captain Shaw and Dr. Dagan went ahead of the children to implore the Whitmans to take them for the winter and explain their plight. The baby could not be found at the time of their parting, and it was assumed that she had died. She was very small and very sick, and everyone was running out of food, and the mothers couldn't produce milk. Mrs. Whitman had been willing to accept the girls, but did not want to take in the two boys. Captain Shaw pleaded their case, saying that they were good boys, and have been through enough, much less it was their mother's dying wish for them to be able to stay together. The boys could hear the conversation and began to cry, knowing that they would soon be separated from the last of their family. And... It was as if he was convincing himself. Captain Shaw added that if they did not prove themselves useful and good children, that he would return in the spring and adopt them himself. Once the cart stopped, the thin oxen collapsed and lay on the ground. The four little girls huddled together in the cart. Their clothes were tattered and torn. They were filthy, sunburnt, and starved. No shoes, no bonnets, and Catherine had just barely been released from her cast. The boys were in the front of the cart, tired and worn out from having to be the head of the household, and they were also half their healthy size. The Whitmans at that time had already adopted two little girls, both half Native American, 
that were left with them so they could be properly educated. Helen Meek was six. Mary Ann Bridger was nine. Mary Ann was the daughter of famed Jim Bridger. And then there was a boy, David Mallon, who was seven. David's mother dropped him in a hole and left him there. The grandmother found him and soon tired of having to care for him, so she took him to Narcissa. They decided to let all of the children stay with them. The sight of them was just too pitiful not to, I would imagine. A few days later, a much welcome surprise happened when the baby was dropped off by one of the women who was nursing her. She was frail, but Mrs. Whitman nursed her drop by drop until she grew stronger. The children decided at that time to change her name to Henrietta Naomi after their mother and their father. Before Captain Shaw and what was left of his wagon train reached the Willamette Valley, Dr. Whitman had raced to catch up with him. He told him that they wanted to adopt all the children and that he need not make the return trip in the spring. Catherine would later write, quote, We soon formed a warm attachment and fell into the practice of calling her and Dr. Whitman mother and father, end quote. The children fell into life with the Whitman family. Part of the mission work was to take care of the sick members of the Cayuse tribe, should they allow it, but it was also to educate their children to speak English and to learn to read and write. They would teach them how to farm and plot the land, but of course their main goal was to teach them Christianity. It was a tribe divided. Some embraced the new ways, others didn't care for the intrusion to a life they felt worked just fine the way it was. By this time, Narcissa had become disenchanted with her choice as a missionary. It was so different than what she had thought it was going to be at the beginning. She had such big dreams and goals, and the Indians just weren't cooperating. She missed society. She missed the healthy conversation of other women. And soon, she couldn't even hide her disdain for the very people she had come to save. She began to distance herself and the children from the Indian people. She sank into a depression, especially after their only daughter died at the age of two from drowning. She spent hours writing in her diary and detailing her struggles in letters to her family. She had a special room built on the back of her home that was called the Indian Room. If they needed the doctor or anything else, they were to knock and would be only admitted to that room. Quote, they are so filthy they make a great deal of cleaning wherever they go, and this wears out a woman very fast, Whitman complained in the letter to her mother. Narcissa threw herself into the lives of her adopted children. They were given school lessons, voice lessons, and since the house was run very strictly, they were taught to fill their idle time with stitching and other chores, which included tending their own small section of garden in which each could choose what they wanted to plant. The boys spent most of their time with Dr. Whitman. As he went about his daily chores, he would usually take one or the other when he made his trips to teach the Indian families how to farm and of Christianity. Every once in a while, he would take one of the older girls. He loved being a father and was the one who would spoil them if permitted. Mrs. Whitman was the more strict of the two, but was very generous with her praise, smiles, and affection in her own way. Catherine would write, quote, Our time flowed on in one uninterrupted stream of pleasure. We were kept constantly gaining knowledge, and from morning until night our adopted parents labored to promote our happiness, end quote. Matilda, who was four years younger, remembered things a little differently. 
She recalls being bored with the monotony. Flowers and gardening were not her thing. She didn't care for the teacher and would much rather be playing than sewing, and felt that Mrs. Whitman's stern child-rearing was not to her liking. But she loved wash day. It was a family event. Catherine and Mrs. Whitman would get breakfast started, the boys were in charge of beating the clothes, the girls would rinse, ring, and get the clothes on the line all before 9 a.m. When Matilda found out she had to knit her own socks for the winter or go without, she decided to participate. Catherine, with her once broken limb, leaving her with a limp, it kept her indoors, missing out on the playtime and exercise the other children were able to have. Catherine recalls, quote, Being the eldest daughter, I had supervision of the other girls, and from being confined to the house so much, I became the constant companion of Mrs. Whitman. An attachment near to that of mother and daughter existed between us from this constant association. To me, she told all of her plans for the pleasure or improvement of the children, as well as her fears and troubles concerning them. When the doctor was long absent, I sat with her and read or conversed. She said often she could not get along without me. End quote. As for the boys, Dr. Whitman loved them completely. He had just started to set up the boys in learning how to deal in the cattle and horse training, explaining that they would be acquiring property and needed to know how to take care of it. Marcus Whitman loved being a missionary. He did love his calling, but also loved his wife and tried in every way to make her happy. He built her a strong and sturdy home and built a life in addition to his missionary duties. He did hear her pleas to move elsewhere, and he did see that the Native Americans were growing weary of their presence. But he had worked so hard for all that he had built, and he felt that he had made strong relationships with the Cayuse and thought that if he left them, it would be a betrayal. So he stayed busy all year round, trying to be all things for all people. It was very important for the Whitmans and the children to concentrate on growing crops and tending the fields and harvesting the rye that grew all around them. Dr. Whitman had a grist mill built nearby that would grind down the grains into flour. He felt he always had to have supplies ready to sell the immigrants. This, he told himself, was just another way he was supporting his mission. It's actually how he learned the sad tale of the Sager children because he would send out some of the Cayuse to see if the travelers were in need. They would sell the travelers' produce and report back if anyone would be staying, if anyone needed a doctor, or if there was any news. During the winters, some of the pioneers would stop and stay with the Whitmans in the mansion, sometimes called the immigrant house, and they would pay or work for their board. It was very busy during the winter, and quiet during the summer when they were replenishing their stock for the next group. During the winter of 1847, the tail end of the larger wagon train that had come through had a breakout of measles. The Indians who were sent to meet them would have been exposed first before the wagons made their way to the mission. Dr. Whitman feared the worst. He knew that the Indians would be deeply affected by the wrath of this vicious disease, and in their present frame of mind, they would likely blame the white people. Enter Joe Lewis. This was a man that was half Canadian and half Indian that had been so disruptive that the wagon train he was with refused to allow him to travel with them any further. 
he beseeched the kindness of Dr. Whitman, who reluctantly gave him work. He was starving and had tatters for clothes, and the Whitmans fed him and clothed him and gave him a place to sleep. So, here's what's happening. The Cayuse Indians are now suffering from the ravages of measles and have no way to fight against it. Men, women, and children are dying at a rapid rate. At the Whitman's immigrant house, eight or nine families from the wagon train have decided to board this winter. Many of them are suffering from the measles. It's 1847, and things don't get better from here. And here comes your warning. It's about to get bad. If you are choosing to stay, which I hope you do, take a moment to check out the photos found at www.ragtagnetwork.com for this episode. It has a layout of the mission grounds as well as for the Whitman's T-shaped house. It's about to get crazy, and sometimes visual aids will help make everything make more sense. Hey everyone, sorry to interrupt, but do you know that the Ragtag Network has its own merch? You can get merch for your favorite shows such as Bag of Bones, Save Me an Aisle Seat, or Total Tomfoolery. Just visit www.ragtagnetwork.com merch now to check things out. The Cayuse were agitated with more and more settlers coming into their space. They were warring with the neighboring Bannock tribe. They were being approached by the Catholic missionaries who preached a very different way than the Whitmans. Their people were dying and they were feeling deceived. Add to that the change of Mrs. Whitman's attitude once her new house was built, no longer allowing Indians to come and sit with her, they now thought her to be remote and haughty. To refresh your memory, at the top of the story I briefly described the Whitmans and the Spaldings, plus Mr. Gray, their first trip to the territory. It's been 11 years, and both ran missions. The Spaldings work with the Nez Persa, and the Whitmans with the Cayuse. The Whitmans gave birth to the first child born to white parents west of the Rocky Mountains, Alice Clarissa. But as I mentioned, she died two years later from drowning. And the Spaldings had the honor of the second child, Eliza, who is now ten years old. At this point in the story, Mr. Spaulding brings young Eliza to live with the Whitmans for the winter so she could get her schooling. And while he was there, Mr. Spaulding and Dr. Whitman went out to minister and care for the sick Indians all around the area. They had stopped at a boarding house for the night, completely exhausted from the day's events, when an Indian friend came to warn the doctor. He told him that Joe Lewis was telling the Indians that the Whitmans were poisoning them so they could take over their land, and that he is stirring up their anger. He recommended that Dr. Whitman get home right away. Now, if I was Eliza Spaulding's father... I would have gone immediately back to fetch her from that place, but, for whatever reason, Mr. Spaulding chose to stay at the boarding house. Dr. Whitman, however, heeded the advice of his friend and rushed home to be with his family and his wife. He rushed through the door late in the evening to find his wife and Catherine, John and Frank, tending to about ten who were sick. Their own Helen Meeks and young Louise Sager were two that were among the suffering. He told the boys that they could go on to bed, that he would take over their duties, and that they would have a busy day ahead tomorrow. He then pulled Narcissa to the side and whispered what he had heard. His intention was to discuss the matter with the mission and the Cayuse chiefs, and if it was not settled, they would leave in the spring, the latest. Noticing that Catherine was still about, 
Assuming that she had heard, he came to kiss her on the forehead and told her that all would be well, and to go to sleep. Catherine would recall, quote, The fatal 29th of November dawned a cold, foggy morning. It would seem, though the sun was afraid to look upon the bloody deed the day would bring forth, and that nature was weeping over the wickedness of man. End quote. That next morning, Dr. Whitman discussed the situation with his assistant, Andrew Rogers, hoping that he could calm the Indians and help them through this time of sickness. But if things stayed in such a manner, he would request to move his family to another mission. Their discussion was cut short when Dr. Whitman was called away to conduct the services for a Christian Indian child's funeral. Joe Stanfield came into the kitchen to fetch Frank Sager to shoot a cow from the field. They always had beef in the winter, so Frank left to take care of the cow matter and then went straight to the school building, leaving three other men and Joe Stanfield to tend and dress it. Matilda, who was now nine years old, would recall the events of the day because of the strict schedule the Whitmans adhered to. Bath time was the same time every day. She would say that all of the Whitman children had been bathed and sent on their way to school. Her sister Catherine was helping bathe the sick children when the commotion started. When Marcus returned home after the funeral, he would enter his house through the kitchen and go to the main room to give his wife the updates of the affair. Now imagine with me a capital letter T. At the intersection of the two straight lines is a large room. This is called the main room. To the left side of the T is the Whitman's bedroom. To the right side of the T is the Indian room. Directly above the main room is a bedroom where all of the children slept. Now the other straight line, at the top where it bumps into the main room, is the kitchen. Further down the T is two more bedrooms where two sick teenage boys are sleeping. So sick with measles they have no idea what's happening and are forgotten about for a short while. Are you with me? Got the visual? All right, let's continue. Narcissa Whitman came out of the main room and went into the kitchen to get some milk and was alarmed to find a handful of Cayuse men there going through things. She shrieked and ran back into the main room and bolted the door behind her as they pressed against it. The chief of the Cayuse knocked and asked to speak to the doctor. She begged him not to go, but he said that he must and told her, quote, bolt the door behind me, end quote. The doctor entered the kitchen and took a seat in his usual chair and began a conversation with the men. John Sager was sitting in a chair winding twine into a ball preparing to make brooms. In a matter of moments, one of the men went around behind the doctor who then split his skull with a tomahawk. Marcus Whitman then fell to his knees and was shot in the throat. When John tried to reach for a pistol, he too was shot and then killed. The women continued to bathe the children until they heard the first gunshot, and then a second. A few moments later, Marianne Bridger, who was unseen in the kitchen, ran outside the kitchen door around to the back door that entered into the main room. Her face full of horror, they asked if father was dead. She replied, yes. She instructed Catherine to get the children dressed quickly. Suddenly, more shots rang out and heavy footsteps ran from the kitchen. Just as Mrs. Whitman was preparing to open the door to the kitchen, the back door opened again. It was Andrew Rogers and Mr. Kimball, one of the immigrants. 
he pushed through the door and shouted, quote, Mrs. Whitman, the Indians are killing us all. He was wounded, bleeding down his arm, and he crumpled to the floor, asking for some water. The Indian room was suddenly filled with women and children. Mrs. Whitman instructed them to lock all the doors. She opened the door to the kitchen and saw the bodies of her husband and John. She pulled Marcus into the main room and bolted the door once again. He was still alive, but just barely. She lay his head on a pillow and leaned down to talk with him, begging him to speak to her. Meanwhile, over at the schoolhouse, Frank had run in the front door and told everyone that they needed to hide. Mr. Saunders, the teacher, pushed past the children and ran out the door toward the immigrant house to get to his family. The children ran to the window, not sure what to do. They saw Mr. Sanders get attacked by an Indian. He managed to break free, but soon they caught up with him and used a knife to slice his head almost completely off. The children were obviously terrified witnessing this execution, and Frank issued the order again that they needed to hide, and right now. He slid a desk over to the edge of the loft and stacked books on top of it. One of the older boys climbed up first and reached down to help the others. All of the children climbed up. Quote, I can see him now, Matilda recalls, after all the years that I have passed as he kneeled and prayed for God to spare us. End quote. It wasn't long before Joe Lewis and several other Indians charged into the schoolroom. They called for Frank, but he did not answer. When they called for the other children, they answered, and the Indians told the children to come down. So, one by one, the children came back down. Matilda recalled, quote, I was afraid to try and jump to the floor, but Mr. Lewis told me to put my feet over the edge and let go, and he would catch me. He failed to do this, and I struck the floor hard, hurting my head. He asked me, Where's Frank? I replied, I don't know. Frank remained quiet, and it evidently didn't occur to anyone to search for him in the loft. Quote. At the main house, they saw Mr. Sanders run from the schoolhouse, and they saw what happened to him. Catherine was standing next to Mrs. Whitman and turned away from the horrific sight. A bullet came through the glass window of the door, and Mrs. Whitman was shot in the chest. She screamed and fell backward as blood pulsed from the wound. They helped to get her on the settee, and she told them to run. Save yourself, she said, and she would repeat, quote, Lord, save these little ones, end quote. Andrew Rogers, who was bleeding from a head wound and a bullet in his wrist, pushed the children from the room and told them to hide upstairs. Catherine didn't want to leave Mrs. Whitman and refused, but Rogers placed a child in her arms and told her to save the child. The upstairs room was directly over the main room. They took the sick children who couldn't walk up first. Rogers returned to help Mrs. Whitman to her feet and brought her upstairs and lay her in bed. They heard a crashing downstairs as the doors were busted in and a group of men were heard rustling about. Catherine said of the moment, quote, The crashing of the doors informed us that the work of the death was accomplished out of doors and our time had come, end quote. They were bringing in the children from the schoolhouse and gathered them in the main room while the men ransacked the house. The children sat in front of the stove to get warm. Dr. Whitman's body lay on the floor in front of them. Someone grabbed a quilt and covered him. The room was filled with Indians as they swung their axes near the children's head and laughed, saying, Shall we shoot? They were instructed not to harm any of the children, but at that time, they didn't know that. Matilda could see her dead brother John lying in the pool of his own blood spreading out in rivulets from his body. Quote, 
It appeared as if he had been hit and just slipped out of the chair he was sitting on, end quote. One of the Indians had John's straw hat on that Matilda recalled him weaving himself from cut wild grass. Her eyes glazed over now as she sees it in her mind's eye, says, quote, Mrs. Spaulding had sewed it for him, end quote. The pantry and the clothing chests were now being ransacked. Quote, I can hear the rattle of dried berries on the floor as they emptied the receptacle of them in order to get the pans and cans to carry away, end quote. Frank came out of hiding and sat by his sister Matilda. Quote, I came to find you, he whispered to his sister. I don't know what has become of the rest of our family. The Indians are going to kill me, and what will become of you, poor little sister? End quote. They were taken to the Indian room and told to be quiet. Matilda remembers being able to see out the window in the small sitting room that was designated for when the Indians came to visit. She said, quote, the Indians were very numerous, some of them on horses, and most of them armed and painted and seemed to be waiting for something, end quote. Upstairs, mothers and children huddled between the beds trying to be as still as possible. Narcissa lay on the bed with three children clinging to her. Suddenly, all went quiet. Everyone held their breath, and then a voice came up from the bottom of the stairs calling to Andrew Rogers. He told them that he had just arrived and saw the scene. If they came down, he could save them. He said that he heard the Indians were going to burn down the house and that this was their only chance to survive. The women and children hurried back downstairs and the man at the bottom ushered them through the main room and out the door. The children that were in the Indian room were also being ushered out the same door. Rogers helped Mrs. Whitman to her feet and helped her get back downstairs. The man helped her to sit on the settee. Joe Lewis came in and picked up one end of the settee, and Rogers picked up the other, and he followed Joe Lewis out the door. The other children were just coming down the steps behind them. Outside, everyone watched as they brought out Mrs. Whitman leaning against the back of the settee. Her face was pale, and she was barely alive. Eliza Spaulding, Frank, and Matilda were huddled together. Elizabeth Sager was following behind the men, carrying an armload of clothing. Joe Lewis suddenly dropped his end and stepped out of the way as a spray of bullets shot Mr. Whitman's assistant, Andrew Rogers. He fell to the ground and another Indian on horseback trampled the body. He was still alive and did not draw his last tortured breath until after dark. Elizabeth ran back into the house to her sisters who all ran back upstairs when they heard the shots fired. Catherine recalls, quote, A moment before had lifted our hearts to almost buoyancy, but now fled entirely, end quote. One of the men came over to the dying Mrs. Whitman and whipped her over the face and body. They flipped over the small couch, and her body fell face down into the mud, and they threw blankets on her. The same man whipped her again and again before someone threw the settee on top. Frank was pulled away from his sister by a teenage Indian, and he spoke very sternly to the last Sager brother. Another Indian of about Frank's age stood beside him and pleaded with him to spare his friend's life. Frank was shoved a few steps back, and the Indian said, quote, You are a bad boy, end quote, and shot him in the chest. Frank's body was thrown back, and he died instantly. All of the people were gathered in one place and taken to the immigrant house. The sick, the women tending to them, and the children. Those who were extremely sick with the measles and laying in the side room were left alone. 
No one thought to check back upstairs where the three Sager girls hid along with Mary Ann Bridger and the very sick Helen Meek and Mr. Kimball who was shaking and sweating because of his bullet wound in his arm. Matilda was separated from her sisters that night after just witnessing the death of her brother and her mother. By nightfall, the carnival of blood was over. The dead bodies lay where they fell from Monday night until Wednesday when the mass grave was dug. Catherine would write, quote, The night of November 29, 1847, found me, a girl of 13, sitting in the company with three sisters and two half-breed girls upon a bed in a chamber of a large adobe house. On the floor lay a white man with his arm broken. Three of the children were very sick. Their clothing was wet with blood from lying on the bed with Mrs. Whitman after she was wounded. We still thought they would fire the building. I tried to soothe the children to sleep, reasoning to myself that if we could lose consciousness in slumber, that the roof of the burning house would fall upon us and we would not know it. End quote. Hey everyone, it's Elizabeth Bougere with Bag of Bones. As a full-time author and amateur historian, I'm out here traveling alone across the United States. I like to know that I can travel safely. That's why I love Damsel in Defense. From tasers to mace, I can be confident knowing that I can defend myself, allowing the world of travel to be open to me. Damsel in Defense offers a variety of self-defense items to choose from, and you can decide what is best for your comfort level. And now I can feel safe while out and about, in my truck, and even at home in my camper. I love this company's mission and dedication to quality. And thanks to Damsel in Defense, I can offer you this exclusive link and you can take control of your safety too. Check out their full product line at www.mydamselpro.net forward slash bones. That's www.mydamselpro.net forward slash bones. The next morning, the children at the main house were burning up with fever and begging for water. Elizabeth was afraid to go. Mr. Kimball reluctantly forced his stiff body up from the floor. His broken arm had swollen and was causing him great pain, but he told Catherine to create a bandage and a sling from one of the sheets. Catherine recalls saying, quote, Mother wouldn't want the sheets torn up, to which Mr. Kimball replied, Child, your mother will not need the sheets. She is dead, end quote. While the Indians demanded food from the immigrant house, Mr. Kimball, wrapped in a blanket, headed down to the river. A man's wail drew everyone's attention, and Matilda went to the front steps of the house and saw Mr. Kimball stumbling his way back to the Whitman house. Suddenly, she heard a shot from over her head. Standing on the step above her, an Indian shot Mr. Kimball dead. Tuesday morning, Matilda and Mrs. Bewley made some gruel for the sick at the Whitman house. They were given permission to take the food over and had to sidestep bodies that had fallen in their path. Catherine and Elizabeth were coming from the house in their direction, carrying baby Henrietta and Louise. Marianne Bridger was able to walk by herself, following close behind. The final child, Helen Meek, could be heard screaming, begging not to be left behind. Matilda went to retrieve her, and the rest were finally all under one roof. On Wednesday, 
They were given muslin and were instructed to wrap the dead and sew them into these sheets. The men were forced to dig a long trench about three feet deep and six feet wide. All the bodies were laid in the grave side by side and then covered with the earth. Louise Sager would die from her illness four days later. She was six years old. The two teenage men who were still bedridden from the measles were starting to respond and take in food. They were able to answer when spoken to, and then, two days later, a handful of men came into the room and began to beat the two men to death with whips and clubs, and their bodies were thrown out into the yard. Helen Meeks would die the next day. She was nine years old. The Indians were discussing what to do with them. Many were saying they could see no use in bothering with them and to get rid of them, kill them. Others decided that they would be made into slaves to do their bidding. It was decided they would keep them until spring, but if they attempted to escape or their countrymen attempted rescue, they would all be killed. A few evenings later, a meeting was held with everyone in attendance and it was decided the young women must choose from the men to be their wife so they could protect them from violence. To use the words of Catherine, quote, the poor girls had to submit to the decrees of their captors, end quote. The other women were set to work making clothes for the men with fabric they found from the mission. One of the hostages, Lorinda Bewley, was claimed by a Cayuse man to be his wife. He attempted to steal her away, but she fought the whole time. Frustrated, the man threw her to the ground, violently hurting her legs and back. Later, there was another kidnapping attempt. This time they were successful. She was taken away, tied in ropes, and given to the chief of the Five Crows where he forced her to become his wife. She was eventually ransomed and lived until 1899. When news of the massacre had reached Fort Vancouver, Peter Skeen Ogden, the chief factor, took goods from the Hudson Bay Company and Ogden declared that if the company would not reimburse him, he would pay for the traded items out of his own pocket. A treaty was made for allowing safe passage for all of the hostages. It's believed that around 70 people were at the mission on the day of the massacre, and at least 14 were murdered. About 50 women and children were taken hostage and ransomed off two weeks later. The day the prisoners were set to leave, there was already some grumbling about the deal, and they were discussing going back on the bargain. An Indian woman went into the room to hurry along the hostages. She knew that they might attempt to do it unless things were already in motion. They were directed into ox wagons. Matilda was in the last wagon, and as she was looking back, she recalled, quote, I remember we left behind a pair of pigeons. The cage was set in the window on leaving. The door knocked off, and the pigeons were still sitting there in the cage. That was the last glimpse we had of them, end quote. Two years after the attack, the chief of the Cayuse turned himself in to the authorities in an effort to avoid the destruction of the entire tribe. He was one of five sentenced to death and hanged. At his hanging, he said, quote, Do not your missionaries teach us that Christ died to save his people? So we die to save our people, end quote. They believed that they killed the source of their suffering. They believed that by killing the Whitmans that white people would stop coming to invade their home. They could not possibly foresee that their actions would hasten their extermination. The remaining four Sager girls were unfortunately separated for a time until Catherine got married 
and invited her sisters to come and live with her, and they did. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Bag of Bones. You may be hearing a few extra episodes covering the Oregon Trail era as I'm actually on a personal adventure following in their footsteps. If you'd like to tag along, come join me in the Facebook group History Revisited as I share my discoveries along the way. Mine is the one with the blue feather. Which brings me to a request. If you are loving the episodes and want to support all the efforts that go into creating them, I'd be so grateful if you'd consider buying a gallon of gas. There's a link in the show notes. Just click that and it will take you directly to the page. And let me just say thanks in advance and please know how much I appreciate it. As always, thanks for listening. I'm Elizabeth Bougeret. Until next week then. Bag of Bones is created and hosted by Elizabeth Bougeret, produced by the Ragtag Network and History Revisited, music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit elizabethbougeret.com. For more podcasts from the Ragtag Network, visit their website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougeret and DCT Enterprises.